Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Jevi from Unchained Capital. Jevi joins me to talk about the crypto collapse earlier this year and why this is the right time to learn about Bitcoin self-custody. We talk a bit about his journey coming into the space, as well as the fiat and yield chasing mindset, as well as why now is the time to learn about self-custody and removing single points of failure. The show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is organizing a conference, Pacific Bitcoin. It's going to be on in November on the 10th and the 11th. It's called Pacific Bitcoin. This is going to be an all-new West Coast event, deeply dedicated to Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. There will be multiple stages. There'll be a main stage. There'll be a Swan Dome. There'll be a Bitcoin Lab. There'll be all kinds of fun and events, as well as opportunities to network and make those connections that we all need in this space. So if you're interested... I highly recommend getting together with some friends or family members of yours. Bring them along. It'll be really fun. I'll be one of the hosts, and there'll be so many awesome Bitcoiners there. So get your tickets over at pacificbitcoin.com and use code Lavera for a discount on your tickets. For those of you interested in Bitcoin mining, brains.com is the site to go. They've got a range of different products and software that you can use as part of your Bitcoin mining journey. If you have Bitcoin mining ASIC machines, make sure you check whether Brains OS Plus is available for them because if it is, you can upgrade your performance by as much as 20%. You might be getting a higher hash rate or you might potentially be using low power mode so you can reduce the power consumption and maximize your efficiency in terms of joules per terahash. So those are some great options for you. They also have Brains Farm Proxy, which can help you manage your fleet of mining machines. And they've also got an analytics dashboard, which you can use to do all kinds of Bitcoin mining uh, profitability calculations. So you can find all of this over on the website, over at brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. Mempool.space is the Bitcoin Explorer built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. It features real-time transaction tracking and mempool visualization. And recently, the big new feature coming out is the Lightning Explorer. So you can now use mempool.space to search the Lightning Network. So if you have a Lightning node that you want to search, let's say you want to just see what are the biggest nodes in terms of connectivity or in terms of liquidity, or maybe you want to actually trace down the transactions that involve channel opens and channel closes. You can see all of this over on mempool.space. And don't forget, this is available over Tor and it's completely open source. So if you want to, you can run it yourself on your own hardware. Over 1 million people use mempool.space every month. It's operated freely for the benefit of the Bitcoin community without ads or third-party trackers. Go to mempool.space and check it out. On to the show with Jevy. Jevy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So yeah, it was great to meet you uh, just recently over in Austin at BitBlock Boom. Had a chance to, you know, quickly chat, obviously, you know, it's, you don't really get a chance to kind of have in-depth conversations with everyone, but, you know, uh, I think that was cool. And uh, I know you're working at Unchained, you're doing product management there as well. Um, right. You know, lots of things we can chat about today, but let's get a bit of a background on yourself and I guess a little bit of your story with Bitcoin uh, before we get into everything. Yeah, sure. Um, so... I, I'm an American, but I was born in Germany. My parents worked over there um, for about 20 years. Uh, I moved back to the States uh, to finish high school. I've effectively been in Minnesota since then. And I went through, I worked in tech for a long time, doing user end support, um, doing some IT work. Uh, and during that period, kind of transitioned into uh, pursuing a passion in photography and video work, uh, which then became a full-time operation for me for better part of five or six years. 
And then uh, I had an opportunity to work at a startup in Minneapolis uh, where I started out as kind of a video photo expert and that kind of uh, migrated into product management for me. Um, that startup was acquired by Microsoft. So I was at Microsoft for a few years. And during that period of working at Microsoft um, was when I started to really get into Bitcoin. Um, I actually fell down the rabbit hole initially with Brandon Quidham, who's a really close friend of mine. Our wives are actually friends with one another. Okay. And um, we actually were roommates before we were friends because uh, Brandon and his wife needed a place to stay after coming back from Thailand or somewhere else. And so we were sitting around the dining room table, just falling deep into the rabbit hole at the end of 2017. And during my period of kind of slowly shifting into understanding Bitcoin better, understanding our, our economic system, that period during that bear market, there were a lot of distractions for me. Um, I got married. We had our first kid. The startup that I was with got acquired in the summer of 2018. So I kind of, I lost track of Bitcoin a little bit. Brandon kept going and, you know, occasionally would nudge me a, bit, a little bit like, hey, you know, don't forget this is over here. But then it wasn't really until the pandemic hit and... I've always been a little bit of a gold bug uh, in years past. I uh, had some silver and gold in a safe. And then when I saw the money printers fire up uh, after the pandemic started, I was like, oh, Brandon, they're they're just going to print, aren't they? He's like, yeah, they're going to print. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. And so I started to then realize that um, and I, I had a good run with the startup that I was working at. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the people that I worked with, but um, the product was starting to move in a different direction than what I was interested in. We were building an ed tech platform and they were wanting to drive it more in the social media direction. And at the same time, it became very clear to me that uh, Bitcoin is what I'm passionate about. And I really wanted to pursue an opportunity in Bitcoin. And so in the fall of 2021, it was actually at uh, Bitblock Boom last year, was uh, I was waiting in line to get my my name badge and Brandon pulls Parker Lewis over and says, uh, Parker, I'd like you to meet your new product manager um, <laughs> and start chatting with him, start chatting with Will Cole. And about a week later, I had applied for the job and uh, yeah, started there. So I've been there now uh, a little over nine or 10 months. Fantastic. And, and I mean, that's great. And I think it's a great example of networking and the connections that you make in the space, especially when you go to some of these events, whether it's a conference mm -hmm. or, or a Bitcoin meetup, if you have even one or two friends who are already there, and they can introduce you to people, you know, Brandon's a colleague of mine at Swan. And obviously, right. I'm a big fan of Parker and Will over at Unchained. And, you know, I think they're doing great work. Uh, and th their ability to help educate and explain and build products as well as write content and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's really cool to see the, the interconnections there. And so, yeah, coming in as a product manager, I, I suppose, and you mentioned you were previously a gold bug. So were you already into Austrian economics or was that like kind of there or not really? Austrian economics was entirely new to me. And that was something that I began to learn and, you know, starting to dig in a little bit on the Mises Institute, you know, obviously discovering the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. And when you approach these concepts with an open mind, they become very apparent very quickly. Um, for a lot of people, they're so scared of letting go of what they know and what they're familiar with 
and so they see these new concepts and they immediately hit a wall and there's apprehension. Uh, there's a lack of interest in better understanding how things could work if you give proper economics an opportunity to thrive. And I think that often, I mean, this, this concept applies broadly in a lot of different areas of our lives is that when, when there is an existing framework, the notion of moving to a new framework seems impossible. And the distance that you need to close in order to get there uh, seems so hard to overcome that uh, even the thought of pursuing it or entertaining it just seems unwarranted or impossible. And so there's no need to apply any thinking to that area. But if we took that approach throughout humanity, we would never have progress. And so I think that there's um, there's a fundamental mismatch in terms of people's capacity for recognizing that there can be revolutionary changes um, in a very short period of time. People often will not recognize how quickly the internet came about. I mean, even in my lifetime, I recall a time when the internet was in its infancy. I was there, you know, relatively early on. I was lucky enough to have a computer uh, and access to the internet from the time that I was, you know, eight or nine years old. But commercial enterprise online is something that's really only what less than 30 years old. And to think that we can't have these kinds of monumental innovative changes in our lifetime is, I think, short sighted. Yeah. And I think as well, that point about how sometimes there are things where people just don't really think about it. They just use this technology or whatever it is. And only it's, it's only if somebody focuses your mind to it and then all of a sudden you actually start reading further about that, right? Like it's like how everyone uses fiat currency without really understanding, you know, if you ask the average person, oh, how does Fedwire work or how does, you know, how does the ACH system work? No, they, there's like basically no chance they'll be able to tell you unless they're like working in the industry. There's basically right. no chance. But if you talk to a Bitcoiner, there's a very strong chance that they'll be able to explain at least some of the basics. Okay, this is like a transaction and it's broadcast to the network and things like this. And so I think it's yeah. it's about awareness. And I think that's also a conversation as well around risks. And I think a lot of people are mm. unaware of the risks that are just sitting out right there and they're just taking them right now in the fiat system. And I think that really plays into, I think, what we saw with this recent, uh, you know, with the recent collapse as well of the quote unquote crypto world we saw all these uh you know providers and companies you know blockfi celsius vault voyager babel finance i think it comes down to just awareness and maybe people's awareness was not up to the level what do you think yeah no i i think you're absolutely right i think well i think for starters there was a a lack of proper disclosure amongst many of these companies in terms of making clear what the risks were uh you know and you've got People on Twitter and places like, let's call it uh, fake vision, um, who talk about <laughs> risk-free yield. And there is no such thing as risk-free yield. If you're looking to get yield on a product, um, you ultimately have to put capital at risk. And a lot of people misinterpreted the notion that, well, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20% yield you know, they're only looking at the the big picture of like, okay, well, worst scenario, maybe they reduce that yield over time. Something that like a BlockFi would do where your yield on your deposits were slowly shrinking over time. They would update their yields every six months or whatever. But most people wouldn't take into consideration what the other side of the coin was. What happened if there was 
an insolvency? What if there was a contagion event that would cause everything to collapse? No one thought about the fact like, well, you know, the upside is five or 10% annually. The downside is 100% overnight. So I think that there was blame to be had on both sides. A lot of people were just taking, were putting too much risk out into the market and not accepting responsibility for understanding the risk that they were taking on. And then on the other side, there were a lot of uh, industry businesses that were not properly disclosing the real risks and the real trade-offs. And we saw that with um, the way in which people responded to the recognition that Coinbase had in their legalese that in the event of uh, bankruptcy or other kind of uh, event where they need to close things down, effectively people that had Bitcoin or any other crypto in their account were the last in line effectively, and they were likely not going to get their money back. And people think, well, you know, these institutions are so big and they've been around for so long, there's no way they could go down, but anything is possible, right? And that's one of the the challenges that I think a lot of people see in crypto broadly is that it is this wild west um, and this free market, um, and it's still very early on. And so there's a lot of volatility involved. And um, not everyone is in a position or doing a very good job of um, mitigating that volatility and thinking about the long term and lowering their risk profile and being smart. Um, there's, you may notice that there are far less instances of Bitcoin-only companies that are having these challenges during the bear market of you know reduction in staff and doing all of the, you know, the rescinding uh, offers that they had already extended to people, whereas in the, the crypto space, that was pervasive. And so I think that kind of, that, that is a perfect example of how there is a, a, a different approach, a different modeling in terms of what is risk. Right. And I think it also comes to, of course, we're living in this fiat currency world. The fiat system is the dominant one today. Of course, we wish it wasn't that way. We wish it was the Bitcoinized future, but you know, accepting that's that's the model, that's the paradigm for most people today. And they are probably coming from a paradigm where they are looking for yield, right? Like, And that's that's just, there's just such a strong demand for yield that perhaps people are willing to overlook certain risk factors. And so I think, I wonder how much of that plays into it. Is it just that so many, I guess, non-orange-pilled Bitcoin types are, they're just looking for yield and either they individually or let's say the fund that is investing their money. It could even be a pension fund, right? So as I'm sure you saw and many listeners probably saw, there were those lists floating around of who had put money into Voyager or who had put money into some of these different ones. And it was quite surprising to see who had put money in. There was even a Canadian pension entity who had done this. And so it's quite pervasive. It's not just individuals just getting wrecked on these platforms. It was large institutions. I think... Yeah, as you rightfully point out, because we have been trained into this inflationary monetary system where we assume that the only way that we can stay ahead and retain our purchasing power is by chasing yield. And I think most people in society don't even actually understand that, right? They Their understanding of, broadly speaking, financial literacy is uh, woefully under- prioritized, especially in our education environment, which we could argue whether that's intentional or not, but we're not going to go there today. However, most people don't understand 
the risks that they take on. They don't understand why they're chasing yield. They just know that they need something that continues to grow over time because otherwise they're not going to be able to retire. They're not going to be able to, you know, pay for their college, uh, the college for their kids. And I think that there, you know, for a lot of people, there was this uh, spark, this light up moment where, you know, crypto may not have appealed to them, but they could understand stable coins because they were a US dollar. And here was an opportunity to deposit money into a bank and get a yield, right? But nobody actually asks, oh, well, the only person that really asks is Alan Farrington, who asks, <laughs> where does the yield come from, right? And if you try to follow the yield back, oftentimes you end up right where you where you started. Uh, it was a very a cyclical system of, uh, you know, one one person having a, a can't miss trading scheme, as Will mentioned during his talk. And when you actually follow that back around, it's really just kind of recycling the same stuff over and over again. And people think that they aren't going to get involved in a, a Ponzi scheme. But if you aren't looking for what is actually there, it's going to likely end up turning out as we saw with the three arrows capital and um, all of the other lending, unsecured lending, whether, uh, you know, uh, all of the the shenanigans that were unfolding during that period. Once everything came to light, it was very clear, like th there's really nothing here. It was just people recycling uh, existing money. And uh, I think that that was very, the, the concept was very appealing to people, right? And in a world of inherent volatility, Bitcoin still feels too risky. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face in terms of providing an understanding of Bitcoin to the average person is that they just see the volatility and they don't think about the broader perspective um, and they don't understand scarcity. They don't understand supply, demand, inelasticity. And so ultimately, I think that this last cycle was instead of ICO craze where people are just chasing massive 100Xers or whatever else might be happening out there, I think people were actually being misled into thinking that they had stability, into thinking that they had uh, you know, something that they could rely upon to provide them with a very comfortable 15 to 20% return. It was guaranteed, it seemed. And I think that lulled people into a false sense of security. And unfortunately, most of those people now are just going to simply swear off crypto altogether, right? Uh, they just no longer have any interest in playing that space. They think it's too risky. Even the stuff they thought was safe is risky. And it, it really, it harms, it harms the opportunity for people to um, be able to start retaining their purchasing power in something that is provably scarce and has a, an immutable issuance. And that value proposition is still too hard for most people to understand. Yeah. Uh, I also think to the point from earlier about the can't miss trading strategies like our friend Will talk, spoke of, it, it's that people weren't quite aware that there was almost this CFI to DeFi recycling going on because people were on the front side putting their money in with the likes of Voyager and so on. But actually on the other side, uh, Celsius and so on, they were out putting their money out to Three Arrows Capital and others right. out there. And when the cycle turns, or perhaps in the case of Three Arrows Capital, where they were coming up 
by profiting from the GBTC arbitrage. And when that arbitrage flipped, it, it went from going a premium into being a discount. Right. Perhaps that was when, uh, maybe that was when 3AC started to come undone because they started to take increasing amounts of risk to try to make it back. Right. Instead of unwinding the trade, they just simply tried to figure out ways in which they could keep that same strategy alive by going elsewhere. And um, they probably would have been much better off had they just unwound the trade, taken a small hit on their overall profit, but they've, you know, they had still massively up, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's greed and ego play a huge role. It is very difficult for people to be able to, uh, especially once... The, the numbers start adding up. There is this sense of pride in thinking, well, I, I clearly am very good at trading and finding these ARB opportunities, and there's no way that I can uh, give up on this. I need to continue to pursue this. So there's this ego component that, I'm just, that I just described. And then there's the greed component of, I've seen number go up in my bank account. It's now eight figures. It's nine figures. I don't want to uh, give up on this new lifestyle that I've achieved. It's this like insane process of thinking like, okay, you know, five mansions, one in Singapore, one in Malta, one in Miami, and one in the Bahamas, wherever else is somehow normal. Like that's the new normal for you, right? Um, And you have to keep the system going. You have to keep it alive. And uh, I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people that would benefit from just staying humble and stacking sats. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, it, as you say, it comes down to ego, overconfidence, and people just thinking that they're above it all. And I think mm-hmm. that is so seductive as well. And I, and I, look, being honest, it's also during the time, like in 2021, when the, when the, the heat is on and everyone's going crazy about it, there were so many times I'd be getting questions. Oh, hey, what do you think about this platform? What, about, what do you think about yield here? And, you know, it's 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 quite seductive. So I'd be constantly being like, uh, look, I wouldn't. I would rather, you know, just stack sats and hodl. But you also risk looking like a boomer, right? You end, you, you end up looking like the conservative fuddy-duddy who doesn't, you know, who doesn't get the new thing. Don't you get the new thing? It's it's yeah. all about yield. And look, yeah. it's 8% risk-free or it's 20% risk-free or whatever, right? And so I think... There's a possibility to run with it all and get lost. And it could be even like, it doesn't just have to be in this context. It could be even like Bitcoin mining if they stretch themselves too far or if they lever up too far. And like the whole industry, no matter where your place, your position, I think there are ways to get wrecked if you're not staying humble, as our friend Matt O'Dell would say. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have, you know, I, I try not to rub the receipts in friends' faces, but, you know, from last summer, there were friends of mine who were asking about Celsius. And I was like, okay, well, can you explain to me how this works? You know, it seems suspect. How are they offering this high of a yield? What's the risk? You're still ending up on a custodial exchange that has its own risk profile. You know, not all custodial exchanges are equal, but certainly some of them seem a little bit more suspect. And Celsius fit the profile for me. And you're absolutely right. You come off as a boomer that doesn't want to you know, take on a safe 8% yield on their Bitcoin. And on the flip side, when it all comes undone, you don't want to rub it in their faces, right? You want to find a healthy way of being able to explain, this was why I was thinking about it in this way. This is why I saw the potential risks and why I was recommending that you not take this approach or that you 
limit your exposure as much as possible and that you're ready at any point in time to get out of there. But keep in mind that Celsius flipped the switch on withdrawals before anyone really had a chance to do anything about it. And that's that, that, to me, that's the unfortunate uh, risk that most people don't take into consideration when they think about the trade-offs of convenience versus security uh, and ultimately what Bitcoin is supposed to offer you. Bitcoin is a bearer asset and it is the first time that we have the ability to really hold something tangible in the digital world and we can control it in a way that no one else can do anything about. But uh, I think that for a lot of people, there is an, there's just fear of the unknown. There's fear of how do I approach um, securing those keys? How do I make sure that I don't lose them? There's a lot of personal responsibility that starts to add up. And so I think a lot of people are apprehensive about taking that leap of faith and think to myself, they think to themselves, you know, a custodial exchange is basically like the crypto version of a bank. And I trust my bank to secure my larger deposits on my behalf. I don't like to be worried about that. I know that I can go and take those out at any point in time. And I think that a, um, an analogy to present here is most of society at this point doesn't remember a, a, a world where a hot war was really part of their daily life. Um, you know, most of um, Western Europe and Japan, relative peacetime for the better part of 70 years. Obviously, I'm not discounting other military engagements that have happened in the, in the years since, but a large swath of the people that are in particular engaged in, in, in modern society in the crypto space don't have that context and they don't know what it's like to suddenly have their bank accounts frozen. Um, they don't know what it's like to um, go through this experience of being insecure in your own space and needing to leave on a moment's notice of having to cross borders potentially and having all of your belongings stripped from you. And when you have enough of a, a gap between generations that have experienced war, um, there starts to there's this growing complacency and this lack of understanding of what that experience is like. And you can uh, draw that comparison into the crypto space. Um, most of people um, haven't experienced uh, any type of uh, government intrusions on their wealth. I think what the, um, the prohibition on owning gold privately in the United States ended in 1974. And so, you have to consider the possibility that just because we have an experience in our lifetime doesn't mean that it isn't possible and that we shouldn't consider potential risks. Um, and especially as the world, you know, now in terms of military engagements is, is heating up again a little bit, people need to be mindful of uh, what might happen in those uh, situations. People in Eastern Europe are certainly far more aware on a more recent basis, or people in Lebanon, or people in Turkey, they're seeing what happens if they leave their hard-earned value in a legacy system, in an inflationary currency, or in an environment where they need to extract themselves. Those legacy financial systems do not serve them well. They do not hold up under pressure. And I think we are very likely going to see an increasing pressure across the world. Um, I think that we're 
uh, heading in a, a very interesting direction in particular uh, as it pertains to energy policy in Europe um, and how that may spread in terms of risk uh, into broader economies, even though other places might have energy security. One area's uh, energy constraints can create a credit issue that then can spread to elsewhere. We've seen that happen with the the housing bubble in 2008 uh, that had a massive impact across the world. Back to the show in a moment. I use the website bitbo.io to periodically check on a range of things through the day. It has things like the price. It has Bitcoin network stats, lightning stats, mining stats. You can see things like sats per dollar, so you can value things in sats. It's also got a Bitcoin magazine feed, as well as comparisons of things like the inflation rate and comparison versus other assets such as gold or GPTC. What's the premium? And you can see things like the projected halving dates. Uh, As you might have seen on Twitter, there was recently some... Uh, discussion about when the actual halving date will be. It's not going to be in 2023, and you can check that on the website bitbo.io. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin self-custody, really stop and think, do you have single points of failure in your setup? If somebody came to your house, or if somebody got your hardware wallet, would they get your coins? Well, with Unchained Capital, you can improve that by going to multi-signature and removing single points of failure from your setup. So with multi-signature, you can have two keys in different locations alongside two metal backups for those seats again in different two in a, in different locations and unchained holds the third key so if you need help with this kind of setup they've got a concierge onboarding program and they can onboard you very easily and they can even guide you through the process of withdrawing from the exchange into your own multi-signature vault so this is a great setup for those of you who want to improve your security you can find out more go to the website unchained.com slash concierge and use the code levera for a discount on your concierge onboarding package with unchained capital Now, when it comes to Bitcoin hardware, my favorite are the products over at coinkite.com. I find them really reliable. My favorite is the cold card. I find it very versatile and useful as a tool that you can quickly spin up new wallets. You can import wallets. You can use a passphrase. You can use BIP85. There's just all these different ways that you can use your cold card to help you secure your Bitcoin. I particularly also really enjoy the address explorer feature, which is available in the cold card. You can use it to check your receiving address to make sure that you really hold the private keys associated for that Bitcoin address. So there's all kinds of features and you can learn more and you can order your cold cards either for yourself or for your family and friends that you're helping onboard. So you can get all of that over at coinkite.com. Use code Levera for a discount on your cold card. And now back to the show with Jevy. Yeah, and as uh, and as our friend Brandon talks about, he talks about cycles, right? He's big into this idea of right the different cycles and paying attention to what's happening uh, around us in the world and looking at that. Where are we in that cycle? And I think it's also relevant that uh, you know at various times in history there would have been some people who said, "Hey, hey, we got to get out of here. Like it's not safe here." And other people are like, "Oh no, it's all good. We're good here." And then unfortunately, the ones who you know just said, "Hey, it's all good," they got wrecked. And unfortunately, that's, uh, you know, that's that perhaps there's a little bit of that in the in the Bitcoin culture in that we're trying to help warn people about, hey, these are the problems with the fiat system. Your money is go- is being inflated. You're guaranteed to lose purchasing power over time, like if you just wait long enough in fiat and there's a chance they'll freeze your money. And so there's there's this, you know, it's it's like the burning platform analogy that people normally make. But I think what is it that's stopping some of those people from jumping off the burning platform to to the bitcoin yeah you know, to the bitcoin world is it is it fear of the unknown is it you know uh, and I, and i'm curious as well uh you know from the unchained capital perspective as well i'm sure you get some you know customers or potential customers who are maybe 
you know, you hear of customers who are not ready to take that step to self-custody. And, you know, what are the typical objections or things going through their mind that, that, that are like the barrier stopping them? Yeah, I think it's, it's just new. It's entirely, it's a new concept there. You know, there are those rare individuals who have been gold bugs who have put a giant safe in their basement and they have bars of gold and they, they understand what it means to take self-custody of a hard asset. I think once gold bugs get over their mental block of Bitcoin not being tangible, physical, something they can hold, they very quickly understand everything else and they're ready to jump in. People, you know, a perfect example would be Lawrence Lepard, who was a an ardent gold bug. And then once the light switch went on, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is this is the the best tool to secure our wealth over a long period of time. But I think as I mentioned earlier, most people just don't have they have this apprehension of taking that responsibility. They don't want to, they want to uh, offload and outsource as much of the responsibility to a trusted individual, a trusted third party. Um, this is one of the reasons why large centralized governments are working so well right now is that there is this complacency that is pervasive in society. People don't want to take on personal responsibility. They want to have um, those um, those safety nets put out underneath them for them at all times. And so I think that there's that fundamental apprehension that uh, most people have, um, you know, not just in terms of getting into Bitcoin, but then in going into proper self-custody of their Bitcoin. I think once they overcome some of those apprehensions, they're still seeing that risk in terms of, well, I don't necessarily know. I'm not technical. I don't understand what this private key is. How am I supposed to secure it? I'll do something wrong and then it will all be gone, which is certainly an issue that people have experienced. They put their their money onto a ledger, but then they only do a paper backup. Uh, and then there's a fire or a flood and both of those copies are done. And people people have a fear of the unknown. There's a lot of different variables that come into play when you're dealing with self-custody that um, you need to be mindful of. And for many people, it's just not something that they're interested in putting a lot of energy into, right? For us as Bitcoiners, this is what we live for. We love better understanding how you can directly interact with the protocol, how you can take control, how you can be self-sovereign. Most people don't have that desire. So uh, I think from there... If they get beyond that apprehension, um, maybe they understand the risk of having just a, a single ledger wallet with a paper backup, you know, creating a metal backup uh, on a seed plate or on washers is a manual process. Some people are just not interested in pursuing that and they don't want to take that on. But even if they get beyond that, then they maybe understand well enough that a single copy of their private key or two copies is still putting them at risk. One of those gets taken and whoever gets that on the other end has the ability to potentially sweep their Bitcoin. And so I think slowly over time, as people become more educated, they start to recognize the value proposition of multi-signature. But then you open up this giant can of worms of, well, now I need to maintain 
three private keys and three backups and I need to maintain the wallet descriptor file and all of a sudden there is so much more involved and I need to uh, in order to be really secure, I need to geographically distribute them. I don't know where else I would want to put these. And I think that the, it's just what you end up with is these at each step along the way, as they drop further into a comfort level with self-custody, there are these new barriers. There are these new blockades that create challenge and create apprehension. And so ultimately, our goal at Unchained is... Once somebody has been able to better understand the importance of self-custody and are understanding the risk profile, um, they want to secure their Bitcoin as best as they can. They understand that multi-signature allows for a distribution, removing single points of failure, um, but it's a lot to take on. And it's a lot to take on on your own. Getting a quorum set up and doing all the individual keys, understanding what an XPUB is, dealing with derivation paths. I don't think anybody could say that it it's simple. And so not only are we there as kind of a, a guide to be able to help you through the process of setting it up, but in letting us take on the responsibility of one of your keys, it means that you don't have to take full responsibility and take on all of that risk of if something gets uh, misplaced, your Bitcoin is gone, right? When you walk away from setting up a multi-signature vault with on-chain capital, you end up with uh, four, well, five pieces of information. You have your two private keys, your two backups, and the wallet descriptor file. And in theory, with Unchained with you there, you can lose four of those five pieces of information and still be able to recover. Technically, you leave the wallet descriptor file out of it. You could lose three out of four, right? You could lose yeah. two private keys two private keys and one backup, and still you'd be able to recover your Bitcoin. And so I think that starts to shift the perception of the risk that you're taking on versus the trade-off of what security you get in the process. Ultimately, we want to help people secure their Bitcoin for the long run and to ensure that, you know, whether it's five years from now or 40 years from now, that they can recover their Bitcoin and still be able to use that for their own lives or uh, for their next generations to come. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just walk that through for any listeners thinking it through and maybe you haven't self-custodied before. So the idea here is it's a two of three multi-signature vault. And as an example, let's say you've got you know one cold card and you've got one Trezor as an example. And each hardware wallet has a metal seed backup, right? So each for each one, you've got a metal backup. And then Unchained has the third key and Unchained obviously is presumably doing its own backups. And then that wallet descriptor file you mentioned is kind of like the map to find your keys to Correct. think of that. And now if you really want to be self-sovereign, that's where you keep a backup of that also. So maybe you've got a USB key, maybe you encrypt that or don't, it's up to you. So in the end, you have, let's say, two different locations. So in practice, you might have, let's say, if you've got a safe at your home, you might keep you know, one of your devices there. And let's say you've got, uh, you go and pay uh, you know, a safety deposit box or a vault somewhere else, ideally with security, and you can keep material there. And then slowly, you can slowly start to geographically distribute your keys and the key backup, the seed metal, seed metal plate backup information. And so I think, you know, to that earlier conversation as well about people wanting safety nets. And I think that's the way maybe in Bitcoin land, we have to help people with that conversation to say, look, the safety net you're using right now, it's actually not that safe. Like in right. certain ways it's safe, but in other ways it's not. Here's a better safety net. Here's the Bitcoin safety net and here's the multi-sig safety net, if you will. 
Well, and not only that, but when we go through a setup of a multi-sig arrangement, we instruct the user to download that wallet descriptor file and to maintain that for themselves. And one of the key reasons for doing that is we've designed our multi-sig to be interoperable and native to the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and we've also released um, now for well over two years, the Caravan software that allows for an individual at any point in time to decide that they no longer trust us or you know something happens to Unchained, we're down for website maintenance, you get spooked, you want to take control of your Bitcoin, you don't need to rely on us. You can take that wallet descriptor file and your two private keys. You can load them into either Caravan, it also works in Sparrow, a ton of other open source software, and you can uh, create a spend transaction to move your Bitcoin somewhere else. And uh, so the, what, what we often like to say is that um, we've set up a collaborative custody in such a way where you don't need to trust us. And for a lot of people, that really starts to uh, click a little bit more, even though they might not necessarily be technical, but simply understanding that there is a way to still remain self-sovereign and to take advantage of what Bitcoin has to offer while being able to leverage in the event of a, a, a calamitous outcome to be able to have someone that's there to be able to help you recover. Um, that's really the the key balance in terms of safety. I think that to your point that people perceive the current legacy systems as safe and the Bitcoin system as unsafe, I think that there's just simply an education gap that they see it as volatile. They're, in, they're unwilling to look beyond that volatility. Um, and even if they do start to look beyond that volatility, more often than not, that comfort level in terms of taking on the volatility and the risk involved um, is then unlocking a desire for pursuing speculative investments. And it's uh, it can be very difficult to find that pathway from uh, thinking of Bitcoin as unsafe to moving beyond the speculation and into this, this method of getting away from and um, protecting oneself from currency debasement. Um, I think that people in places like Venezuela, Argentina, Lebanon, Nigeria, Turkey, they're much more open to this because they they feel it tangibly. I, I, um, I've occasionally referred to it as like frogs boiling in water um, in places like the, the US or the EU up until recently. Inflation was running at such a low click that people didn't really notice it. They would just hang out in the water. It felt like a nice hot tub. But in places like Turkey or Lebanon, you're very acutely aware whether you had any interest in financialization of anything, you're very acutely aware of the negative impacts of currency debasement and the resulting effect on your purchasing power. So I think that um, there's, unfortunately, as much as I would like to get as many people as possible into Bitcoin before all of these systems start to come completely unwound. I just don't necessarily see it happening. I think that ultimately, um, uh, and this goes back to the broader conversation that we're having of taking on risk without realizing it, is that oftentimes you need to get burned before you take that responsibility. If you are a Bitcoiner and you've held on an exchange and that exchange has disappeared and done a rug pull, suddenly you better understand why self-custody matters. 
um, people that are still living in this Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken world haven't experienced that. And it's possible that we don't see that, but there is still a risk there. It is a non-zero chance that something happens that results in their Bitcoin being seized or taken away. Even with Coinbase, there have been instances, there's people uh, that work at Unchained who have had family members that have had Bitcoin on Coinbase. And for years, despite not doing anything illegal, despite you know being a US citizen, having their Bitcoin seized effectively frozen in their account for well over three years. And so to think that it couldn't happen to an individual in one of these environments is just simply naive. And we need to we need to find a way to be able to bridge that gap before people ultimately have to get burned by everything going to hell. It's important for everyone to really think through the infrastructure we're using every day because it's quite feasible that you think something is safe and working, but it's really not. And if that infrastructure were to fall down, would you be capable of running your own infrastructure? And so, of course, this applies in things like running our own Bitcoin node and then an Electrum server and then connecting our Sparrow wallet or our Spectre or our Electrum, as an example, to that server to be to actually be self-sovereign and with our own private keys. Um, and I think that's also important when it comes to, let's say, in the case of the Unchained Vault customers, where if they do it right, they can't be frozen out of their own money because they have the keys that are required to spend and they've got the wallet descriptor. And if they run their own infrastructure and, you know, over time that gets easier and easier, there are different, you know, full node uh, packages out there, things like Umbral and Raspberry Blitz and MyNode and so on. And so you can actually run your own infrastructure. And I think this is a great, uh, probably a, a lesson for listeners. So if you're just listening and maybe you're, earlier in your Bitcoin journey and maybe you're just maybe you're investing a little bit in Bitcoin but you've never actually like run it properly like you've never run a Bitcoin node and actually tried it with your own node and connecting let's say Sparrow or Electrum to your own Bitcoin node I think it's a great exercise for people to do and or even if, if, uh, some of the uh, node package node packages also even bundled in Caravan as an example so you could literally run Caravan on your own infrastructure and that gives you that feeling of freedom and safety. And I think that really gives you a real sense of sovereignty. Um, but it takes time to get there, right? And, uh, you know, I think what we've seen with the Celsius blow-ups and all of this is just like how after Mt. Gox went down, it was, you know, a lot more people were focused on this idea. And now, I, I recall back in those days, I think Andreas had not yet popularized the saying, not your keys, not your coins. That's how yeah. early it was. I think he popularized yeah. that in maybe, off the top of my head, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think around 2015. So okay. that was when he popularized that saying. And obviously now that's that's part of the Bitcoin ethos, if you will. It's not your keys, not your coins. And it's important that, um, you know, people learn that and uh, really, uh, really believe in it and really stand for that. And as a community, what do we stand for? Of, and I understand there's different communities, whatever you call this, educators, advocates, promoters, builders, developers, whatever. It's, it's, you know, what do we stand for? And I think part of that also comes to the way products and services are made. I think it's important that people are coached and educated in that direction. Also, uh, I know you've got a new trading desk as well. So do you yeah. want to just tell us a little bit about that? Um, what's the structure of this and how does this differ from what is, you know, or what was there, you know, just prior with some customers who could, you know, purchase on the platform? Yeah. Yeah. So um, most people don't realize this, but Unchain has offered buying and selling Bitcoin uh, directly into cold storage for better part of two years now. Um, but it was an OTC desk. So you had to, it was a more manual process. You got on a call with us and we talked through a quote. 
And this was only available during business hours. Our minimums were relatively high. And when I joined, this was kind of the primary focus for my work was to um, help build out a, um, a tool that is built into our website, uh, into our platforms that clients can log into their account. They can see an option to go and buy Bitcoin and they get a real-time quote. The unique value proposition, there's a few. Um, one is that you face us directly as a counterparty. Uh, so when you buy Bitcoin, you're buying it from our, our Bitcoin reserves. So when you send us funds to pay for that, we are then settling directly into your cold storage vault. So it is the, the time and the distance between you making a purchase and settling final settlement of Bitcoin into uh, a multi-sig quorum with keys that you can control without any additional processes involved. Um, that's really kind of the value proposition that we have. We still have, we've lowered our minimums. We're looking at um, $5,000 minimums. And so clearly it's still not appealing to the, the DCA army necessarily. I don't see most people doing $5,000 DCA, but um, there's probably people out there that are doing so. But for a lot of people, there is also this, this hesitancy of needing to purchase on, say, a Coinbase or a Gemini and then making that spend transaction, entering an address. It's just an extra step. And I think that's actually one of the, the things that Swan has done really well is to find ways to integrate that more tightly and to set up auto withdrawals that you can set up once, know that you have it set up right, and then be able to worry less about it. But what, what we ultimately try to offer is um, a solution that allows for there to be less distance between you and your counterparty and the uh, time in which your Bitcoin settles into your own cold storage. And because we've now been able to integrate this into our website, that means that it's available 24-7. So you no longer have to wait until Monday morning at 8 a.m. if there's a good price on the weekend. You can execute that trade. And then next business day, you can wire us in the funds and we send you the Bitcoin. Fantastic. And so that could also be handy, perhaps if there are people who, you know, they want to buy the dip, right? Like if there's a certain dip at, you know, midnight and you're up and you're like, hey, I'm, I want some coin, let's do it. So, you know, there's a few options there. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's just great to see lots of options coming into the space that people can just buy directly to their self-custody. I think ultimately what we need is to just drive the self-custody message. And obviously that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of Unchained. I love what you guys are doing. You know, I th oh, while we're here as well, uh, what states and um, you know, what states is the availability? So we, prior to really pushing into this new tool, our OTC desk was only operating in maybe 12 states. I think that's one of the reasons why people weren't really aware of it. It was kind of a niche solution for those specific states. 50K minimums really priced a lot of people out. In the last few months, we have been aggressively going after money transmitter licenses. We're now at 30 states. Um, it's probably easier to list off the states that we don't operate in than we do. Uh, you can always go to our website at onchain.com slash trading desk, trading dash desk, and you'll be able to see what states are available there. Uh, currently only in the US, uh, there is, I think we operate in the US Virgin Islands now. Uh, so we do have one territory, not just states that are involved. And we're, we're keen to try and push into all 50 states uh, as quickly as possible. Obviously, you know, there are some that are always more challenging, the likes of New York, Louisiana, those 
are just inevitably going to take some more time. Hawaii, another example where the regulatory requirements are very strict and very difficult to overcome. But that it, that is our mission is to make this as widely available in the United States as possible. That's fantastic. And, you know, it, it could also happen that, let's say, if your customer is a high net worth individual, which you know they might be if they're buying 5k chunks at a minimum. Uh, and, you know, let's say they've recently become more curious about Bitcoin. Let's say they've got an allocation, they're saying, okay, look, I've got, you know, 200k that I want to put into Bitcoin over the next I don't know, year or whatever, and they, they want to do 10k a month, you know, that's, that's also an example where they are able to buy, you know, directly into their custody. So that's, that's a great option. I, I think one other question, I'm curious to hear what you think, and uh, just around volatility. And so I think for people who are, who are newer to Bitcoin, and let's say they're buying larger sums, what are some of the ways that you would help explain to somebody how to deal with the volatility of Bitcoin? Um, as the, especially if they're relatively newer in that in that orange pilling journey or process, yeah, I think that volatility is is here for the time being. We're not going to get away from it. I think most Bitcoiners uh, who understand the value proposition recognize that we are woefully undervalued in terms of the dollar denominated price value, and as long as we're th- such a long distance away from where it should theoretically be priced for the value that it offers, it is going to remain inherently volatile. So you should expect more volatility. You should plan your um, purchasing and your allocation around that volatility. You should only invest what you can genuinely afford to leave without touching or needing for anything for at least five or 10 years. I think is a conservative approach to take. And you should assume that there are going to be, you know, we just had a a nice 10% candle, but you should assume that there's going to be another 60% drop from here. You shouldn't assume that just because we've taken a big drop off that suddenly we're, you saw that in the 2018 bear cycle where it kind of seemed to flatten out and stabilize around 6K and then the floor dropped out. And if you have this mindset of thinking longer term, of lowering your time preference and building towards um, just growing that allocation and knowing that there is going to be a future where um, the value proposition is going to be better understood, I certainly feel as though the way that our society is evolving, the macro climate, there it's just a matter of time before more people suddenly switch that perception of Bitcoin being a risk asset to being a risk off asset and set a plan that you can, you know, you can leave and not necessarily think about, have a plan and then let the, the, let the price do what it does. Um, I think that's one of the, the really strong uh, arguments for a dollar cost averaging tool is that, um, you are able to define what you can afford to set aside. And when you think about a lower price, not necessarily being a loss on the existing position, but that you're getting an opportunity to acquire more into that position at a lower price, suddenly that mindset shifts. I think a lot of people can still be susceptible to paying attention to the whimsical nature of the Bitcoin price. Um, and it can create anxiety and stress. And so I think ultimately set a plan that you can afford to leave and not have to touch the money. Don't trade on leverage. 
don't do dumb margin stuff. Just have a plan and stick to it. And I think you're going to end up in a much better position. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably a good spot to finish up there. So listeners, make sure you follow Jevy online. His Twitter handle is at Jevy Don. So that's J-E-V-I-D-O-N. And of course, unchained.com. So uh, Jevy, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.